Marshall and Sager here. Welcome back to The Realignment. Thanks for tuning in to our season two finale. As always, if you haven't rated the podcast five stars, please scroll to the bottom of the Apple Podcast channel and give us a rating. Today, we've brought on FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr, the junior Republican on the Federal Communications Commission. Commissioner Carr has been incredibly outspoken on a whole set of issues that we've covered this season. Everything from the power of big tech to China, online free speech controversies at the New York Times and Twitter, and he's really thinking deeply about the future of the conservative movement. Agree or disagree with him, we've really enjoyed speaking with Commissioner Carr because he's clearly an actor in government who's openly rethinking his approach to the world and was more than willing to engage with critics instead of just offering talking points. So before we dive in, though, we want to make a very quick announcement. This episode marks the last episode of The Realignment that'll air under the Husson Institute's umbrella. Starting next season, Marshall and I are spinning off the show on our own, and we are very, very excited to see where we're going to take things. I'm going to remain in my position as a media fellow at Hudson. I've really enjoyed working with the team here this past year, and we're working on a bunch of new projects that I'm really excited to share with you soon. We'd like to shout out everyone at Hudson who played a role in helping bring the realignment to life. And most importantly, Phil Hegseth, he's done such an amazing job of producing and editing this show. Literally could not have done this without him from day one. And secondly, we very much appreciate the effort of Caroline Andreg of the Hudson Public Affairs team, who put so much effort into this show from the very beginning. Special thanks are reserved for Hudson's leaders, Ken Weinstein, John Walters, and Anne-Marie Hauser, who are more than willing to take a risk on an unproven idea. Last but not least, Hudson senior fellow Mike Duran deserves special recognition. I first met Mike during the summer of 2017, and I briefly mentioned an interest in launching a podcast with my friend Sagar. Mike went on to champion us and the idea for two years until we launched. It's been a pleasure to work with all of you. So with all that, let's dive into our conversation with FCC Commissioner Brendan Carr. Commissioner Brendan Carr, welcome to The Realignment. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate it. Yeah, absolutely. So, Commissioner, you've made a lot of waves here in Washington in a relatively short amount of time. You've been featured in several different news articles. People are wondering, who is this man? He's he's part of the conservative machine, they say, but he's he doesn't necessarily talk the way that Republicans or people who are conservatives are supposed to about big tech, about China. And that's something that I think led to Marshall and I really wanting to have you here on the realignment. So broadly, what has been described with respect to you is that you're breaking with conservative orthodoxy on a lot of different issues. So before we even get to that, um, what what that means, do you even agree with that characterization? How do you see yourself within the context of the FCC, of the conservative movement, the Republican Party, and our politics today? Well, I think, you know, some of the points that you make there are probably not too far off base. I mean, look, I Grew up uh, in terms of my own political thinking in D.C., uh, very much from the libertarian style approach. And I think by and large, uh, in the vast majority of cases, that's still the right approach. Limited government, small government, less uh, regulation, uh, let the free market work. And the free market capitalism has delivered far more benefits to people throughout history than heavy handed government regulation ever has. At the same time, that doesn't mean no government, no regulation. I think we have something really unique going on right now with big tech and with the approach to China uh, that requires a reassessment. So the bipartisan approach we've had for decades to China, I think, has failed. 
And right now you're seeing the U.S. government approach China with uh, much more strength. And I think our prior approach really was weak. Uh, and I think the same thing with big tech. We had very much a laissez-faire, hands-off approach to big tech, whether uh, at the FTC, whether at competition authorities like DOJ. And now big tech has amassed the most amount of power of any type of entity that history has ever known. It has more control over more speech uh, than we've ever seen. And I think it is appropriate to say, you know, the preservation of individual liberty uh, can sometimes come into conflict with uh, zero regulation of massive corporations. And I think that's what we're seeing. And so I think that we can have an appropriate government role with respect to big tech that will actually further liberty rather than inhibiting it. Can you help us chart through the way, I don't want to say you've evolved on things, right? Because that term has connotations to it, but the way you sort of charted yourself since basically, let's say 2015, because what's interesting is that if you read a lot of the sort of media commentary on your positions and the things you're articulating, they really frame it as one day, you know, Commissioner Carr was this traditional libertarian, the term is sort of light touch regulatory person. And then the next day, he's magically addressing the tech question from a sort of more aggressive posture. So can you just chart what it's sort of been like for you in your position at the FCC over the past four years? Because I think that's the part that people are always sort of interested in. Yeah, I think there has been uh, a bit of uh, new approach to my own thinking. I also think there's a bit more consistency through my positions than what uh, some people are, you know, characterize. And it's hard to get into it uh, in a tweet to sort of explain that. But take big tech. When I first heard ideas about reforming what we call Section 230, which is this unique liability shield that big tech has, you know, I bought a lot of the high level talking points that are still out there. So we were told that Section 230 are the, are containing the 23 words that created the internet. And by golly, you know, I don't want to touch or disturb something that is that integral to the creation of the internet. But if you peel that back, you know, look, we have not only the internet, of course, in, in Europe where 230 doesn't apply, Twitter operates there, Facebook operates there, Google operates there. So maybe uh, 230 isn't as integral to the way we have the internet today as it used to be. I also heard people say on 230 that there's no path forward for reforming that provision of law that's not gonna result in less speech on the internet. That's not what I want. I want more speech, more ideas, more diversity of viewpoints. And I think there are plenty of paths forward. In fact, I think it's really what 230 is about is more speech and user empowerment. So that initial instinct that I had looking at section 230 uh, might lead you to a view of saying, look, the traditional conservative libertarian view is to leave it in place. But also the thinking there that I came to was 230 is not an efficient uh, operating free market system. It is a system that is skewed. It is an unlevel playing field skewed by the presence of Section 230, which gives one set of political actors special protections that every other political actor that aren't covered by that provision don't enjoy. So I think when I first came to this issue, I sort of bought the talking points that are still going around in D.C. today. But when you really unpack the issue, a lot of that falls away. So I want to get into that real quick with this sort of argument about what Section 230 preferences and what it doesn't. And I think at a broad level, I think for the purpose of this conversation, by we meet by Section 230, we're referring to the sort of congressional um, decision that when a, let's say you're on a platform like Twitter, Twitter isn't responsible for content that other people put it on, put on the site. That, that also extends to sort of internet forums and basically most websites. 
Um, so that characterization, that characterization being said, how is it a unique carve out, right? Because any sort of website on the internet is protected from that liability shield, right? So like when I put a comment on the newyorktimes.com or National Review on the conservative side, they're not responsible for that either. So could you just sort of expand on your thinking on why you think it's a unique carve out? Yeah, it's a fair question. It, it is not a unique carve out as to every other thing that's covered by it. And there's a lot of things that are covered by it, just like you said. Uh, you have, you know, this famous incident recently with the Federalist website. Uh, I won't get into all the details of that right now, but the point being, Section 230 protects comments posted on that website. It protects comments that would be posted on, you know, Home Depot if they have a website. So all of these websites that have user-generated content are equally protected by 230. What I mean by that is, if you go back to the pre-230 days, you go back to the 1990s and you had a, uh, the CompuServe messaging board and the Prodigy messaging board, there were traditional cases looking at those and applying tort law, essentially libel, defamation, defamation, the way you would apply to traditional newspapers or to libraries or to bookstores. And the case law that arose out of that and then 230, which codified some of that case law was, we think there's something unique about CompuServe and Prodigy that's different from a bookstore, a newspaper, or a nightly TV broadcast. So we're going to give special treatment to that uh, medium over those other mediums, which can also engage in political speech, right? TV shows, political speech, newspapers, political speech, websites, political speech. So it's equal treatment within the sphere of its coverage, websites, which is broad, but it is unequal treatment with respect to other political uh, actors and sort of uh, uh, gatekeepers of media messaging. Hmm. So I want to pull back a little bit because I, I do think this is a fascinating conversation and actually just talk about the means and the end. So one of the things that we, you know, that we open the discussion about is about orthodoxy and GOP orthodoxy. You talked about how you still retain the same principles um, about more speech. What fascinates me about this, and I'm certainly a, a proponent of this as well, is we're trying to attain these original ends that were kind of defined by a limited government approach and free speech and all of that. But by doing that, we're open to the use of more government power. So how did you, you know, when you're talking about the original talking points and all of that, to me, the 230 debate often doesn't really revolve around 230 itself. It's a lever of government power that the right, in this particular case, can use in order to correct something within the marketplace, which seems structurally against the principles that we seek to attain. So how did your kind of thinking evolve both on the subject of using regulation or you know, even antitrust, that type of thing, as well as on 230 specifically? Yeah, I mean, to your point, I think this entire debate about 230, which is really interesting and can get into interesting weeds, I think, is a microcosm for this broader debate uh, in the conservative movement. And to me, it's a fork in the road. And it's there's a lot of threads to this. It's not necessarily just, you know, one path, another path. But one path certainly is this historic approach of doing nothing. Republicans should sit on our hands. Uh, we should not uh, engage government in any way. Uh, light touch regulation means no touch regulation. And in theory, you can see how that works. And in practice, I apply it in many, many cases, but you don't need to be slavishly, slavishly applying that. So take, for instance, net neutrality. That's a, an issue that is, you know, was very high, uh, hot button issue in telecom for a while. I voted, of course, to remove 
Title II utility style regulation of the internet. I voted to remove net neutrality rules. And some people say, how do you square that? How do you square removing net neutrality rules, which include anti-discrimination, with advocating for potentially more regulation on big tech? And I would give two answers to that. One, the scope and scale of power that big tech has versus your internet providers is just really incomparable at this point and the biased application of that power. So two very different things. Two, we continue to have much more substantial regulation on internet providers than we do on what we call edge providers or big tech. So for instance, when we repealed net neutrality, we kept a transparency rule in place. So if you're going to uh, you know, speed up traffic or slow down traffic or prioritize traffic, you now have an obligation under federal law to disclose that. And a uh, failure to abide by that disclosure is enforceable by the FTC. Well, imagine how much better of a situation we'd be in with big tech if we had even that amount of regulation. So much of the concern right now about bias in big tech is that it's a black box. Uh, you lose followers. Why? Did they stop following you? Were they plucked off by a platform? Who knows? When you used to reach, you know, 10,000 people with a tweet and now you reach 5,000. Why is that? You know, there's just no transparency right there. So I think <clears throat> what looks like a, a fork in the road between regulation or no regulation is more subtle than that. I think we can have appropriately scaled regulation for big tech. And that doesn't mean that I'm acting inconsistent with my view that we should lightly regulate uh, the internet in general. I mean, it's just the scale of regulation right now is just, uh, uh, is just not present at all with respect to big tech in any meaningful way. See, the reason why I love this debate is that I'm someone, if you've listened to this podcast, who's pushed back against a lot of libertarian ideas. But I think there are parts of this debate that sort of awaken my inner libertarian. And I think it's important to note that, you know, and as you and I've, what I've always appreciated looking through your work is you, you're pointing out the nuance in a lot of these, a lot of these issues. But let's talk for a second about sort of the state of bias and the state of conservatism when it comes to these platforms. Right. Let's, let's define the problem. Um, I was speaking with Kevin Williamson at National Review last week, and the point he made, I thought was interesting when I'm curious what you think about it, which is because he's anti-regulation, right? He's someone who very much is, I'm libertarian, any regulation always helps the left. It's this very sort of anti-statist argument that I actually don't really agree with in most contexts. But his argument is this, if you go back to the 1960s, right, you had ABC, NBC, CBS, and the predecessor to PBS. Um, you basically had William F. Buckley and a couple of publications like National Review, aka conservatism, non-mainstream, not gatekept thoughts are completely excluded from the public sphere in most cases. Um, in the 1980s, you then get the invention of talk radio and Rush Limbaugh comes up. In the 90s, you get Fox News. And then over the course of the next 20, you know, 20 plus years, you get the internet, right? Where you get platforms like Facebook, where while there are always the, where are these examples of bias with moderation, we could still look at the top performing content on Facebook is usually conservative, right? Like Candace Owens does her anti-BLM post and it gets 80 million views. Compare that to the views that, you know, CNN content is getting, right? So you have the situation where it seems if you look back over the past 50 years, conservatives have only gotten more speech, more input in the public squares in contrast to sort of the power of the New York Times. So can you just comment on that dynamic? Because I think, I think there are so many different parts to it. I'm curious what your thoughts are. Yeah, a lot of really interesting threads in there. You know, one thing that re reminded me of was at the FCC for decades, we had this thing called the Fairness Doctrine and a related doctrine called the Equal Time Rule. And that was basically if you were going to cover a controversial issue, you had to give equal time and or equal coverage to both sides of it. 
And the idea, of course, was they wanted, you know, both sides of debate to be presented. Well, what was the upshot of it? The upshot of it was less speech. Instead of being interesting, uh, the local news broadcast ended up being like old style airline food, just bland because they didn't want to trigger uh, the fairness doctrine or the equal time rule. And the FCC repealed that uh, basically for First Amendment reasons. And what happened from that? Well, a thousand flowers bloomed, conservative talk radio uh, chief among them, perhaps. And so, yeah, there's certainly a approach to this where you can say uh, more freedom, less government regulation has benefited conservative voices. And you can point to the internet today, to your point, and see a lot of conservative voices that have a platform. I mean, I complain about Twitter all the time while I'm on Twitter. And so some mm-hmm. people can say, you know, what gives? And I would say, again, it's, you know, it's a bit more nuanced than that. You've got these social media platforms, Twitter, that when they are amassing all their power and they're growing inside, they would say things like, we are the free speech wing of the free speech party. Come here. You had government, you had officials at Twitter saying, uh, the truth is, this is a quote from them, we're impartial. We believe strongly in impartiality. The Twitter platform doesn't take sides. Diverse perspectives are treated equally so users can see every side. I don't think you would hear that same thing from Twitter officials today. And in fact, when we talk about this bias debate, where it started was people saying uh, these platforms aren't biased, it's all made up. And now what you hear more often is, of course, they can be biased. They're private platforms. So I think part of what we're seeing here is a shift in the way that content moderation takes place. It is a very, very different type of content moderation, I think, than we saw a few years ago. It's certainly different than the content moderation we saw when Congress passed Section 230, which is another reason to look at this. But look, are there ways we can go forward that are going to result in less speech? Yes. Should we go down those particular ways of 230 reform? Absolutely not. You know, we got Parler right now. I'm on Parler as a you know competitor to Twitter. I think that that is a great thing. But none of that, I think, undermines sort of the basic point that big tech lives in a sort of... Um, regulatory white space. They're within our jurisdiction, a little bit at the FCC, 230 related, a little bit of FTC, a little bit of DOJ, uh, but you don't see sort of a, a, a sort of a, what I would view as a regulation commensurate with their power. But your point is right. We got to be careful. You can go with an approach here that's going to result in less speech. In fact, that's why I didn't want to uh, engage the 230 debate two years ago, because I was convinced you can only get less speech. Now I'm not convinced. I think there's plenty of ways forward with 230 where the upshot is more speech for everybody. Yeah, I think I think this is really interesting. Again, because what we're talking about and something that you use the words on was power. And so when we're talking about power, I think one of the things that we have talked a lot here on the podcast about and more is antitrust. And I'm curious, actually, for your view on this, because you've touched a little bit. Um, you know, I know it's not within the domain of the FCC. But we've talked a lot here about how the unique challenges that the internet and internet big tech companies pose to the ways that we think about antitrust doctrine. So the traditional way that we look at antitrust doctrine is about consumer welfare standard, where as long as they are not impacting the bottom line price the end consumer is using, then the government does not necessarily have the ability in order to go in there. Whereas the new kind of conservative document, or really our doctrine, or old, really, if you hearken back to how we look at it, is the 
market power and its ability to influence things in the first place. How does your 230 views kind of coincide with the broader skepticism of this concentrated power and government ability in order to do something about it? Yeah, there's a lot to, to unpack there that I think is interesting. It's funny, when I've been talking a little bit about antitrust in the context of big tech. I did it at a Senate hearing uh, with some uh, questions I, I got from uh, some of the Senator, Senator Cruz in particular, my staff said, look, if you if you ever mention the word antitrust and big tech again, you're not going to get invited to speak at another Federalist Society conference. <laughs> so please, please cut it out. Uh, and I, I take that perspective. But here's what I think. You know, a lot of the antitrust and competition law developed to regulate something that was much different and much slower moving than big tech. And I think we need to be honest about this. So if you're looking at the Ma Bell telephone monopoly, which Reagan played a role in and breaking up, if you're looking at standard oil, railroad cases, I think antitrust law is a, you know, potentially a very good fit there. But the models developed for that are not accurately giving you a picture of big tech today and where it can go. I'll give you an example. 2012 or so, Facebook uh, bought Instagram, right? Our antitrust models, competition models say that's a small photo sharing app, uh, maybe like standard oil, maybe like a railroad. It's not going to grow that much or change that much in the short order. Of course, with the scalability of tech, uh, Instagram could have been a massive competitor to Facebook in six months, a year, two years down the road. Now, I'm not saying we should have blocked that transaction. I'm just saying our tools aren't necessarily necessarily oriented around the speed with which big tech moves. And you can see it in my space at the FCC. We recently reviewed the merger of T-Mobile and Sprint. And, a, and I, it's funny, I view this as the opposite side of the Facebook-Instagram coin. Instagram was soon about to grow. Sprint was soon, if not now, <laughs> doing the opposite of growing. And people said, don't mm. let Sprint T-Mobile merge because you're killing a competitor in Sprint. And it was very clear to me, Sprint was dead man walking. There was not going to be a fourth nationwide competitor. Is it better to let the merger go through, strengthen our third carrier, T-Mobile, and let them punch on an equal weight to Verizon at and And I said, yeah, that's better. And that deal ended up going through. Long story short, it, it, it's saying the models, even we at the FCC have largely assumed that Sprint was going to stay as it was, that there wasn't going to be a massive shift, in that case, downward, or in Instagram's case, upward growth. So I do think that's one challenge is applying antitrust to big tech, given the scope and scale of its movement. And I know that it's not popular in a lot of conservative circles to talk about more robust antitrust enforcement, but at least have the tools to understand the thing that we're looking at. Yeah. And I think just a quick follow-up on that. I think what's interesting, and I'm glad you brought up the Instagram example, because we were going to bring that up. Because I think what, in 2012, you had a very quick succession of Facebook acquisitions, Instagram, WhatsApp, Oculus Rift, which is, um, you know, uh, VR technology. Um, so, Go if do you think moving forward, how should the right think about these acquisitions? Think about these sort of tech acquisitions, um, because it, it seems as if the lesson there, like you said, is that these things scale very quickly. There are network effects, so you, you it's just harder to sort of conceive of that. But at the same time, to sort of add another wrinkle on top of this, um, if we look at these acquisitions, that's sort of the way that innovation happens in Silicon Valley now, right? So you have these big companies, Google, Facebook, Microsoft, Twitter, who will acquire smaller startups in order to drive innovation. So there's this broader conversation of if we are too aggressive on the antitrust front, we'll actually sort of 
cut the legs out from our, you know, innovation. Um, so I'm just curious to what you sort of think before we move on from this. Yeah, there, there's sort of two approaches to that, right? Are, are we preventing the mergers that will result in more innovation? Or is there a strategy of sort of the tech version of capture and kill or, or, or kill the competitor in the crate? Right? You've got a lot of these Silicon Valley behemoths that have their ear to the ground looking for the next competitor and sort of buying them out early. Again, I'm, at this point, and I'm not a, an FTC or, or DOJ official, so I don't have a, 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 an established view on outcomes, whether we should be permitting or not permitting. I still have my libertarian view that you know we should be hesitant to block this stuff. But my main point being, I'm not sure we have the tools that are letting us see what these things, these small startups could be in, in six months or a year from now. And it's a tool-based problem, and it's also human nature, right? We we tend to underestimate the pace and nature of technological change. I'm, I'm reminded of a of a quote attributed at least to Henry Ford, which was if he could have asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. And we even called the first cars horseless carriages. And so I think there's a, a, a human element to this, and, and I would hope that we have, and if we don't, we are developing the antitrust tools to let us see the big shifts in technology and then assess the public interest, good or bad, against that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Brennan, this is one thing I actually really want to get into because I've been having a hard time wrapping my head around this, which is that, I mean, I think listeners to this podcast, anybody who follows me on Twitter knows that I, um, I'm i not a big fan of TikTok and uh, its ownership by ByteDance, which is a Chinese corporation, which has, you know, has a literal, uh, a pro Chinese propaganda division as part of its corporate governance structure in Beijing and having access to hundreds of millions of people's phones uh, and their data, including many American citizens and our children. However, I saw news recently that Instagram Reels, which will be the competitor to TikTok, will be launched by Facebook Corporation recently. And so the way I'm thinking about this is, well, you know, as somebody who's skeptical of Chinese infiltration in the American market and of data privacy of American citizens, I'd be very happy to see an American competitor, especially if the U.S. government were to ban TikTok. At the same time, as we just talked about here, I mean, that we're just talking about potentially even more accumulation of market space and of market power by the same Facebook corporation. That's an interesting, um, it's just an interesting problem to think about. How how do you look at it? Yeah, I think there's there's two wrinkles there which are interesting. There are some elements, of course, uh, that what TikTok does is quote unquote, no different than uh, a Facebook or a Silicon Valley in terms of you know uh, uh, scraping your data and using your data. There is a big difference, I think, when that data is scooped and scraped and then potentially available to the Communist Party in China. So I think we need to separate those two issues. What's interesting to me is you see some of the traditional uh, DC think tank people who are all over uh, attacking TikTok, but yet they are just completely silent when it comes to some of the abuses uh, of privacy and massive data operations of Silicon Valley. And again, you could attribute neutral principle goodwill to them and say, the reason they're stepping in here is not because of that first issue, which is that all of these applications scoop up data, but the second issue of Beijing, but color me a bit skeptical when, you know, they're so active. Uh, and then to your point, that activity also happens to benefit Facebook when they go to launch a new competitor to TikTok. But, you know, to be clear, you know, I don't lose any sleep over uh, competition to TikTok. I don't lose any sleep. In fact, it's welcome news to see uh, whether it's Pompeo or the, the state department, uh, talking about potentially taking action against TikTok. In fact, you know, we at the FCC, much more core to our jurisdiction, have taken uh, very aggressive and appropriately so 
action against Huawei for some similar issues. So I was going to ask this later on in our China section, but it's actually the perfect way set up here. What do you think about a argument that big tech companies have been sort of putting forward, which is that, look, we are your national champions, right? If you look at the industries that have sort of emerged from the sort of, you know, beginning of the 21st century, it's really the technology industry and that, you know, technology is basically, you know, taken over, you know, the whole software is eaten the world idea. Um, so any attempts at regulation are just going to hamper the sector that's driving the most innovation, a sector that creates a lot of jobs, and a sector that's going to be competing with a Chinese state apparatus, right? The sort of the subtext here is that this Chinese Communist Party is not only intertwined with Alibaba and ByteDance, but they're actively supporting them. So how do you sort of think about these debates about big tech in the context of like our great power competition with China? Because because I think that what's been interesting is that the more libertarian arguments haven't been particularly effective of swaying opinion, but I have just sort of anecdotally seen a lot of effectiveness from this idea that we shouldn't be cutting off our national champions um, when they're competing with Chinese competitors. So I'm curious what you think about that dynamic. I think that's part of a lot of what we're talking about here, which is there's a little bit of truth there and a little bit of what we call regulatory uh, arbitrage or political arbitrage. If you feel like you're getting uh, attacked by whether it's, you know, Elizabeth Warren on the left calling the big breakup big tech, maybe you can and create an alliance uh, with China Hawks by saying you need a massive Facebook, uh, Twitter in order to compete uh, with some of the national champions out there. So I think that's it's, it's a confluence of, of a couple of different features there. I certainly don't think, you know, just like, you know, we don't need to embrace China, uh, Chinese, communist China style of government to build out 5G networks. I don't think we need to hold up a boogeyman of the communist regime for the purpose of letting go what we otherwise would think of as a, you know, competition harm in the U.S. or a uh, harm to consumers in the U.S. I think it's it's not an either or. I think we can both, you know, apply competition law, apply antitrust law, uh, look at consumer protection issues and trust that, you know, our system of government, even applying our laws, we are still going to beat uh, every other country out there because of, you know, the exceptionalism of the people we have here. So just to sum up this section then, I'm sorry, unless you have something you want to add. Um, so the, the real question here then is like, what, so having listed, so anyone listening to this section is going to sort of wonder, like, okay, so what are Commissioner Carr's takeaways, right? What does he want, right? Within your purview, especially, what, what are the, the sort of reforms of policy or, regulation that you would want us to take away from this conversation? I think a couple things. You know, one, we're going to get a petition probably within the next week or 10 days uh, on Section 230 that the administration is going to file asking us to potentially adopt rules. I think we should take that petition up and I think we should take action. You know, Congress drew a line in the sand in the 1990s. They said good faith, that's in the statute, good faith content moderation gets the benefits of 230. Implicitly, that means there's a category of things called bad faith. But there's been zero federal guidance on where that line has been. And in fact, courts have basically read that good faith provision out of the statute because they don't reach it in their analysis. So I think there's an appropriate place for the FCC to step in there, won't violate the First Amendment, uh, won't lead to less speech. I think we should do that. I think the Federal Trade Commission should continue to step up. And this was also in the president's executive order on 230. If you're out there representing to Congress and your users that for all of the content moderation we do, it's not political or partisan based. But then if in fact there's evidence that you're doing that, that's almost like any other type of 
bait and switch that's out there. It's more complicated. I'll admit that. But I think that's the type of issue that the FTC should be much more aggressive on. And then DOJ should be looking at some of the antitrust. In fact, they're doing this with some of the search issues. That's the regulatory front. But I also think there are steps that these companies can take on their own. You know, I put out this idea called turning off the bias filters. What I mean by that is when you go into Facebook or Twitter today, they now have third-party, quote-unquote, fact-checkers that are filtering your feed before you see it. And these fact-checkers are really just political actors at the end of the day. Why not let people go in? If you don't want MSNBC to fact-check your feed before you see it, turn that button off and be able to get just the straight, Wild West version of Facebook or Twitter. If you want Fox News to filter everything you see before you get it, click that button, have them do it for you. But if we can get the platforms not necessarily out of the business of content moderation, they can do it. In fact, they have a lot of free speech rights associated with that. But why not empower users? And I think this is really what 230 is about, to have the power to opt out of that regime. I think that would go a long way. I also think there's more transparency. And you could get the transparency from the FCC or from other mechanisms, perhaps, to let people know what's going on. When you lose 100 followers, why is that? Did, did the platform pluck those 100 off of you? Or did, you, did those people just decide they wanted to unfollow you? Or are they bots? No one knows right now. And so people fill that lack of information with their own perceptions of bias. And so I think bringing more transparency to what's going on would be helpful to everybody. Yeah. I think another area that we want to get into, because and look, tech is obviously fascinating and at the China angle as well, something we spend a lot of time about. But look, I mean, traditional methods of media also have immense power in our society continuing. The New York Times, broadcast television and radio, many of those things which are under your purview as well. And we've kind of seen in recent months, or really this month in particular, kind of an internal culling of the, this idea of having free speech in many of these media organizations, which were previously at least trying to commit to that ethos, if not living up to it. What's your assessment of you know what is going on right now with the New York Times and many of these other media organizations, especially in the light, you know, we're taping this just after Barry Weiss's resignation letter came about. And it was really kind of a, a moment which a lot of people, both left and right, had a lot to say about. What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, this is fascinating. So whether it's the Barry Weiss from recently or whether it was the Senator Tom Cotton op-ed in the New York Times um, uh, from a a few months back now. What a lot of people don't know, and I did not know this until uh, a few months, it's an interesting tick. A lot of people say, a lot of people didn't know this. They're usually saying something that they themselves just just learned, and that's that's true in my case, well, copy that. But the the, the the modern modern day, I read it on the internet, the modern day op-ed launched in no place other than the New York Times in 1970. Uh, it was an editor by the name of John Oakes, and he was pushing back against the group think, the sort of the Maoist group think that had come to dominate uh, discourse in the 50s and 60s. And he said that diversity of opinion is the lifeblood of democracy. The minute we insist that we think the same way, uh, then sort of our, our democratic way of life is in, in jeopardy. And I butchered the last part of the quote. But the op-ed was expressly designed, he said, to uh, not reflect the views of traditional New York Times editors. He says they will still have their pages, they'll still get their views out there, but we want op-eds to be different, diverse, and contain ideas that we reject. And in fact, it's funny, they replaced, or the, the way they, where they placed the op-ed page was where they used to have obituaries. And obituaries were actually a very, um, uh, financially lucrative page for right. the uh, the newspapers, but 
you flash forward 50 years, 1970, 50 years forward, and where the New York Times op-ed page was, you know, replacing an obituary and was the bastion of freedom of thought. Now with Barry Weiss and, and, and the Cotton op-ed, it looks like it is returning to this groupthink orthodoxy that must be consistent with uh, the views of the editors. So where it used to be an obituary, uh, maybe maybe now it's sort of a page of sort of dead or at least stale ideas. So a bit of a, a bit of a full circle there. But I do think it's dangerous. And I think it started in the safe space culture of colleges. It has moved into Silicon Valley uh, tech companies. It's gone to, as we're seeing, newspapers, and it's going into C-suites of companies. Um, and I think it's, it's, a dangerous, it's a dangerous trend, I think, because more speech is better. You don't have to agree with me uh, substantively, but we've got to hear each other out. See, I love this topic because I'm personally obsessed with sort of the future of the media industry. And I also, to borrow a term from the left, think it's a very intersectional issue that ties across a couple of different conversations we're having. Because part of the reason why I think the New York Times of the 70s looks different from the you know 2020s isn't just about sort of the culture on campus. It's about business models, especially business models on the internet. So for example, part of the issue, and this goes into the earlier point you made about the Federalist, part of the issue on the internet is that Google and Facebook are just absolutely dominating um, digital advertising online. So it's meant that publications are having to pivot into getting people to pay for them. And part of the way that business model works is you, you, know, you put a lot of content and then you get five to 10% of your most intense readership to actually subscribe. And they're the ones who are gonna sort of drive that conversation. So what I think is happening here is that the New York Times is being driven by its most sort of ideologically sort of center left to, you know, left audience. And there's no real business model in sort of being the paper of record, being all things to all people. So I think the question for you, um, and then, then this also relates to the Federalist point is, how do these conversations about advertising and media and then the way that the sort of um, speech, how do these things sort of come together? Because I think the, the broad issue here is that some folks, this isn't my opinion, some folks think the issue is that Google and Facebook have too much power um, and, then the, and then are killing the advertising industry, which is also killing the ability to have speech online. So what do you think about all of that? That's a lot there, but I think it's really something that's on a lot of people's minds in the industry. Yeah, really good good points there. There's a lot of different directions to, to go with it. I'll take it actually back to our job at the FCC. We regulate television station ownership, radio station ownership, and we have these, you know, frankly, arcane rules that come back from decades ago that say, you know, one person, essentially one company, can only own so many TV stations because we don't want them to have a footprint geographically that covers the entire country. And the ostensible principle there was we didn't want them to we want a diversity of, of voices. Well, now we have the introduction of these online platforms that have no such limitation. Of course, they can reach uh, consumers nationwide. And one perverse relationship there is on the ad revenue side. So local news, uh, uh, local TV stations were long and are supported by ad revenue, the local uh, furniture store, the car dealership, and increasingly online advertising, Google, Facebook, um, all of those local ad dollars in large measure are shifting to online platforms. That's putting tremendous, tremendous pressure on local broadcasters, on local newspapers. And that's why you see newspapers, to some extent, closing by the dozen across the country. Um, and so one thing we've tried to do with the FCC is to deregulate, allow some scale, some needed scale to come to um, the local media space, local television, so that they can start to you know, compete a little better with these internet giants. But it is, 
you know, you talk about one consequence on, on sort of uh, the content in newspapers because of the internet. This is another feature of that with ad revenue going online. Of course, it started with Craigslist or maybe even before that. Um, mm-hmm. We're losing some of the diversity of information at the local level. Yeah, and I think that that's something that, well, it, it, what I'm curious is, is that how is it, one of the things you just referenced was about the arcaneness of the rules. And I don't think, I think that that is something that is so important to understand because look, I mean, my other, you know, some of the listeners know this, but so my, my other job is on, is rising on the Hill TV, which is all on YouTube, right? Which is now in terms of the Google actually spun out the revenue numbers for YouTube for the first time ever and something like 15 billion in annualized revenue. It's almost exactly equal to like the Hollywood in that industry. So when we think about video in this particular context, and now we have to think also about business models um, as well, how is it that the FCC and your organization, or even maybe just you in particular, are thinking about how to update a regulatory infrastructure to an industry which changes year over year dramatically and can go from in 10 years to a completely different industry than it was, you know, 20 years ago? Yeah, I mean, our core jurisdiction obviously being much more about um, radio and TV than, than, <clears throat> than big tech. And so the movement there has been slower and it's been a decline. There's this statute <clears throat> on the books that, depending on how you read it, says that uh, you know TV stations can't reach more than 39% of the American population uh, in terms of one company owning affiliates in, in different areas. And uh, we have re- we have tried at the FCC to liberalize uh, those rules to allow greater ownership and therefore really greater investment. Uh, we've had Democrat pushback just consistently along the way, and they said we want. Uh, localism. We want diversity, so we can't have people come in. And it's like, guys, we are losing localism. We are losing diversity because we don't have the investment. I was in a small town, uh, Powell, Wyoming, and there's a radio station there that wanted to sell to a radio station in Cody, Wyoming. And we, uh, I went to visit that station, and it was effectively a Dell laptop running piped-in music from Chicago on a loop. <laughs> and our regulations at the FCC say we can't have the Cody station by Powell put an Powell station, put an actual person there to provide actual local news because we want diversity of voices. So uh, it's definitely a, a perverse outcome uh, at the FCC. We've tried to liberalize it. We've run into a lot of problems with the courts. And in fact, we're petitioning for Supreme Court review uh, in a case right now that has to do with relaxation of media ownership rules. So for my last question, uh, and by the way, I just want to say thanks for, I think, really engaging with these um, questions here. Um, taking a step out real quick. Do you, what do you think the, because this is a, to sort of sum this all up, like what, what do you think the future of the sort of conservative movement in the Republican Party is that sort of has to adjudicate all of these issues, right? Because I think, I think Senator Ted Cruz was recently commented as saying that the future of the party, the future of the GOP is populist and it's libertarian. So looking at this conversation, looking at all these sort of issues, like what do you think that future is, right? So if we're waking up in 2025, how do you think the party or people in the party are going to be thinking the on a deeper level about this? You know, this is a conversation that I have um, you know, with a lot of conservatives right now, which is, uh, you know, after President Trump, whether it's in, you know, a few months or, or a few years, uh, I'm officially agnostic on that because there's a hatch act uh, that, that limits what I can say on that. But so regardless of when that happens, that's the question. Does the conservative movement, you know, sort of snap back to the D.C. style, you know, uh, libertarian uh, 
approach or not. And I'm not convinced at this point that it snaps back because if you try to look forward uh, to a, you know, a political party uh, uh, in terms of how do you generate 63 million, 73 million votes, I'm not sure that doing nothing both offers enough people enough stuff or is the appropriate place to be given some of the threats that we see to liberty from uh, big tech. So I do think, you know, whether populism is the right word or not, um, I think this idea that we can do nothing or we're socialists is a false choice. And I think what we've been seeing over the last couple of years in terms of Republicans standing up to abuse of power within big tech, I, I think there's an element there that's going to continue. I hope that's a bit of a guiding light uh, as we go forward. Mm. Well, you're speaking my language, Brendan. So my last question, I guess, is how is it that more of, and I guess we'll be glib, how, how can the, a movement create more of yous when so much of the movement is not designed to create people who think the way that you think or think the way that I think? I mean, you, you jokingly refer to that Federalist Society anecdote, but it's true. I mean, you're talking about an organization which has a monopoly, essentially, on the entire conservative legal movement. So how are people supposed to professionalize themselves, get credentials in this world, and also hold heterodox views that meet the challenges of the moment? You know, it's, it's a challenge. So D.C. itself does not feel like it is set up to uh, support or to foster people whose views on the conservative side are, you know, appropriate and light touch regulation versus no regulation. It's, it's basically a, a zero sum game. You're either all for no regulation at all, uh, or you're not invited to any of our parties. And if you want to ultimately leave government down the road, I think you see a lot of people that start to tack to the middle and tack to the left to try to find a, a softer landing spot uh, in DC or otherwise. So I think continuing to stand up institutions uh, that talk about uh, this potentially new future for the conservative movement, uh, making it okay to have conversations just like this, that's a significant piece of it. And I think you can build uh, momentum from there. You can build consensus from there. Because I think it does build a bridge a little bit between inside the Beltway uh, and everyday Americans uh, throughout the country, blue-collar Americans, working Americans, no-collar Americans, uh, and what they're going to expect in the future from their representatives. Hmm. Well, this has just been such an excellent conversation, Brendan, and one of the few public officials that will actually tell us what he actually thinks about something. So <laughs> cannot tell you how much we appreciate that on this podcast. Thank you very much, Brendan, uh, for joining us. It's been excellent. And more people can find out more about you at your Twitter account as well as at the FCC. So appreciate it again. And just quick thing, we didn't get we we didn't get into it because there's a lot here. But um, Commissioner Carr has an excellent op-ed in the Wall Street Journal about memes and the 1964 famous Daisy LBJ ad. So definitely check that out if you want to sort of get deeper into this. It's really interesting. Thanks, all. Appreciate it. All right, we hope you guys enjoyed the episode. And if you enjoyed this conversation, please drop us a five-star rating and share the podcast with all of your friends and family. And just wanted to shout out again the Hudson team who did so much work to get us through these 40-plus episodes. We're really pumped for what's going to come next, but we're always going to be grateful for all the great work we did these past two seasons. We will see you guys next season. Next season.